0: And let's read together from 1 Corinthians. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, Always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. Good morning. First off, we're starting a new series on uh, marriage. And I have a free book for anybody that raises their hand that wants the book. First person that wants it. It's a great book on marriage. Nobody wants to grow in their marriage. Okay. Right there. Oh. Oh, all right. Good. It's a great book. Uh, it's called Creating an Intimate Marriage. Uh, and it's, intimacy is more than just the physical aspects, but it talks about those too, so it's a good book. Anyways, uh, we're starting this new series today, uh, called For Better or Worse. And in your bulletin, you have, uh, the reading plan that goes along with it. Uh, today's sermon is not gonna be what's in your bulletin notes. Sorry. So getting everything ready for the, for the meeting today and everything else, uh, the time came Friday at four o'clock. I was completely done with my sermon. I was excited about where my sermon was going to go. And I got out, I printed it out and in my office, I preached through it and it was an hour long. And, uh, I know we have communion and Jordan shared and I thought, okay, well, if I do that, nobody's going to have lunch on Sunday. So I started praying and, and, and now it's on the crunch time. Cause I had a Friday night thing and a Saturday night thing. And, and, uh, God just kind of led me to take a huge chunk from that and do that next week. So next week we're going to do an exegesis, a fun word, of Ephesians 5. We're going to look at the role of a loving leader as a husband and a submissive wife, which is a nice, fun topic in our culture. So we're going to tackle that and make sure we have enough time to tackle what that looks like. So because of that, today uh, we're going to dive into uh, how God has designed marriage, and then we're going to even look at some marriage myths. Now, before we dive in, I do want to make uh, one comment about some of the changes going on here at the church. Um, One of the questions that we forgot to address this morning and that we didn't address before, someone says, well, with all these uh, staffing shifts that are happening, is your role going to change at all, uh, Phil? And the answer to that is no. Um, I'm still going to have the same role. In fact, With John now freed up to do some of the things that he's going to be freed up to do with this new shift, I'll probably actually have more time to do the job that I have been put in here so that he can take some of the things that often pull me from what my job description is. So my job role isn't changing at all on this shift. Uh, We're just really excited for how God is doing that. And then one more thing before we dive in, I just want to walk through. Here's what the series is going to look like. If you can go to that next slide on Uh, Today we're looking at definition of marriage. Next week we're going to look at loving leadership and biblical submission. And then March 17th we're going to look at how to navigate relational conflict in marriage. And then when we rewrote the Constitution, the question was... Well, what about divorce and what does the Bible say about divorce? So on the 24th, we're going to look at that. What does the Bible say about divorce? And on the 31st, we're going to ask the question that was asked with our Constitution is, can someone who's been divorced previously serve as an elder or deacon? So we're going to tackle that passage in First Timothy together. April 7th, we're going to look at how to recover from divorce or how to help someone, support someone who's going through that or going through relational struggles. April 14th, we'll tackle some tough issues that often happen in marriage that make marriage difficult. Uh, on Easter, we're gonna dive into the marriage between Christ and the church. When, in Ephesians 5, when Paul describes marriage, he actually says this is actually a description of Christ and the church. And so we're gonna talk about how Christ died for the church and, and the gloriousness of that, of what Christ did for the church and rejoice in his resurrection. And then April 28th, we're going to look at sacrificial love, which is what I believe is the key to a healthy marriage. And then there may be another fun week, which I won't discuss yet, but we'll see if we get there. So let's uh, open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we dive into this series, God, we know this is such an important issue. And we know maybe there's some people in here who are single or going like, wow, that's a long series on marriage. But God, we know that even these principles for marriage apply to other relationships and things that we need to do and what it looks like to be a person that listens and cares for someone else. And we know as we dive into the series, there are people that have things in their past, things that they wish they could get rid of and, and hurts from their past. And we pray that as we teach through this series that that... We will demonstrate that God's grace is sufficient, and that God is so gracious and so patient with us and brings forgiveness and healing. And God, I also know, as we dive into this, there are marriages that are thriving, there are marriages that are doing okay, and there are marriages that are just surviving. And God, so we pray that as we dive into your word, that you'll help us as a congregation to value marriage and also help those that are just surviving, that we'll see hope, that there is hope. And that you can bring restoration and reconciliation in their marriage. We pray that you'll move in great ways. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, my story is maybe different than yours. Maybe similar. I don't know. So I was a 20-year-old when I got married. 20 years old. And I thought I was smart. Turns out I wasn't. Um, I was smart to marry my wife, but I wasn't just smart in how I handle relationships. I want to make sure I clarify that it was a very smart decision to marry my wife. But as a 20-year-old, I didn't really understand the complexities of marriage. So we've been married over 16 years. There've been ups and there have been downs, but the first four years, frankly, were awful. And if you ask Sandy, she'll tell you the same thing. I'm not telling her anything new. She lived it. Um, but life was hard. You know, I we 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 were both college students, and and finances were difficult. So I dropped out of school to work full time and. And then she finished school and she got a job that she hated and every day she came home and complained about her job. And, and that as, as a husband who wasn't very mature to listen and love and support her, I started getting really frustrated in the marriage and I disengaged emotionally. And I threw myself into work and ministry, working 50 hours a week at work and, and doing youth ministry 30 hours a week. And part of that was just so I didn't have to deal with other stuff. I could always be busy. I had an excuse to be away. And frankly, if we didn't have a covenantal view of marriage, there's no chance we would have lasted those four years. If I wasn't a Christian and I didn't think that God had created marriage for a purpose, I would have just said, I'm done with that. In fact, there were times that I thought, would someone hire a youth pastor that's been divorced? I didn't consider divorce an option because I knew how God, I knew what God thought about divorce and marriage, but at the same time, I felt like we were in such a miserable spot, I couldn't imagine this being a forever thing. In 2006, four years into our marriage, we moved to Grand Rapids, and God did something awesome. We had free time, and we didn't know anybody, so we were forced to spend time together. And, uh, And during that time, it was when the Tigers were making their push to go to the World Series in 2006. Also during that time, we learned to play a game called Settlers of Catan. And so most nights we'd go home, we'd eat dinner together, we'd throw on the Tigers game, we'd sit at the table, we'd play Settlers of Catan, and something really interesting happened during that time. She became my friend again. See, during that whole marriage we had had been loving each other in this kind of situation where we felt forced to, but during this time we became friends again, and then our friendship grew, and as our friendship grew, our love grew, and then God brought this amazing restoration in our marriage during that next year, and then God continued to do that. But even after that, there were ups and downs. There were times where, where marriage was great and times where it was hard. I remember a specific time where I was, I was doing premarital counseling, and I was counseling this couple about marriage, and there was one area of our relationship that was really a struggle. And because of that one area of relationship, as I was teaching these, this young couple about all the different aspects of, of marriage, and I got to this point, and I said, this is what God's design is for this. And in, in my mind and in my head, I was really bitter. I felt like I was I was putting a lot of effort into our marriage, and yet this one thing was not there, and and I felt resentment. So I re- read all these books, and I handed her books to read. You know that always works. And uh, <laughs> I just anger and resentment, and, and eventually, uh, you know, we both went to counseling over it, and Sandy went to counseling, and and as God healed that, then some of those wounds, and I started to realize what I was doing in our marriage was just really detrimental, and I had this shift that happened in my mind that was really powerful that. Instead of focusing on how Sandy was wrong and how she needed to improve, what if I just focused on where I need to improve? What if I focused on how I need to love her better, how I can be more sacrificial? There was another big shift that happened, and that was when I went to a conference. And at the conference, the guy who was speaking to us, he said, how many people in here uh, believe that prayer is important? Everybody raised their hand. How many people believe that it's valuable? Everybody raised their hand. How many people think that it would be valuable to, to pray with your spouse? Everybody raise their hand. How many of you pray with your spouse every day? Three people raised their hand. And I wasn't one of them. I went, man, I'm called to be the leader of my house, and I'll pray with my wife. So we started praying with each other Every night. Between the counseling, between the praying together every night, between focusing on how I could serve my wife instead of focusing on my wife's flaws, our marriage drastically changed. And this is what's fun. I look back and I remember times where I was doing premarital counseling and I was teaching somebody to do the things that I wasn't doing, teaching them to do the things and saying this is how God has designed marriage. But I can say that right now I come into the series to teach on marriage and marriage is fun. I'm in a really we are in a really fun season right now. Where we just enjoy each other and we're having fun and all the different areas of our of our marriage right now are just really fun. And I know for some of you you're coming here and you're like I don't want to talk about this because right now marriage is not fun. And I can tell you I've been there. And it stinks. When marriage is not fun, it affects every other aspect of your life. But when it's great, it affects every other aspect, too. And so I'm coming to, today to, to share with you that there's hope. I've been where it stinks. I've been where it's hard. I've been in times where, where we've gone to bed at night, and the Bible says not to go to bed angry, but, but so we said, well, we're going to bed together, but we're both facing the opposite ways. And, and the problem is she falls right asleep, and I'm just left up to be mad. Sandy has a gift where she could fall asleep at any time. So, and, and she also has the gift of she has to think about things before she talks about them. So we'd get in an argument, and, and I'd spill out my guts, everything. Man, I'd just pour it all out. And she'd sit there, and she'd just think, because that's how she reacts. And then she'd fall asleep. And then I'm just like, what in the world? <laughs> Go clean the dishes. Bang, bang, bang. I'll wake her up with how i serving her by doing the dishes just loudly, so hopefully she wakes up. Not that I've ever done that, but but the reality is that marriage is hard. It's difficult, but if you're in that season, there's hope. There's hope. I love my marriage, and I couldn't imagine me saying that back when it was hard. It's fun. I couldn't imagine saying that back then. And I think sometimes we, we get disenfranchised about marriage, You know, there's the stat that has often been said from the pulpit of many churches that 50% of marriages end in divorce, and in the church it's not any better. Actually, no, that's not correct. Go up here. Uh, Shante Feldman, who's a researcher, did some research and found out that that statistic has actually never been true. In fact, when, when I always heard that statistic, I wondered, what churches are these? Because in... My lifetime, now I probably don't remember very much from when I was a kid, but if I just take from the time I was 18 until now, the last 20-ish years, I only know five people in the church that have been divorced during that time. Five. And I'm like, how could 50% be divorced? So Shante Fellman did this, and she found that 72% of those who've ever been married are still married to their first spouse. And of the 28% who aren't, that includes everyone who was married for many years until a spouse died. No one knows what the average first marriage divorce rate actually is, but based on the rate of widowhood and other factors, we can estimate it's probably closer to 20 to 25%, which is a lot lower than 50. Now, if you include all marriages, second marriages, third marriages, fourth marriage, it's probably in the 31 to 35% range, depending on the study. So a lot of times people that have been married three times are much more likely to get divorced the fourth time and the fifth time. Now expert, demo, demo, I can't say this word, demographers, that's not the right word, you know what it means, the people that do demography stuff. Anyways, continue to project that 40 to 50% of couples will get divorced, but that's a projection and those numbers have never really come up and even the divorce rate right now is starting to drop instead of to rise in the highest age group, risk age group for baby boomers. Uh, seven and ten are still married to their first spouse, many of them have had 30 years to give up on their marriage and they're still married. She partnered with Barna because one of the statistics that was often quoted was Barna says that the, 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 the numbers between the church and, and, the, and non-church people is the same, but they were just going based off of religion, which back in the day when they did the studies, everybody said they were Christian. So when they just added one simple question, did you attend church last week? With that one question, the divorce rate dropped by 27%. And that's one of the smallest drops found in recent studies. So overall, regular church attendance lowers the divorce rate by anywhere from 25 to 50%. So if you want to work in your marriage, come to church. Another study from 2002 found that of those that said they were unhappy in marriage, if they stayed together for another five years... of them said they were happy. So 66% of the people that stuck it out five years later said they were happy. Not only that, those that did get divorced still said they were unhappy, the majority of them, five years later. The divorce didn't fix the problem. But we go back and we look at these things, and the reality is that if Sandy and I didn't have a covenantal view of what marriage was, We wouldn't be experiencing the tremendous blessing that we're currently experiencing if we had given up when it was too hard, we would now Think that wow, that was a a mistake and, and we would now not be reaping the benefits of what we currently have But in our culture, we're in an interesting time because until a few years ago, we never had to define what marriage was And so recently The government redefined marriage, but the reality is that the the government really doesn't have the right to redefine marriage. They can redefine what marriage means in America, but the government isn't the one who defined marriage in the first place. God created marriage, and God defined marriage. And so when we think about what marriage is, we need to look to the scriptures. John Stott said this about marriage. Marriage is an exclusive, heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman, ordained and sealed by God, preceded by the leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing in permanent, mutually supportive partnerships, and normally crowned with the gift of children. Not that that happens in every marriage, but it is often the case. My simple definition is God defined marriage, one man, one woman, for one life. That's his intention, a covenant relationship. Timothy Keller says this about marriage. Marriage is is glorious but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, and yet it also involves blood, sweat, and tears, humbling defeats, and exhausting victories. No marriage I know more of a few weeks old could be described as a fairy tale come true. Next week, we're going to dive into Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, but I want to read it to give you a preview. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul's been talking about, about what it looks like to live by the Spirit, and in 21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And then he goes on to show what does it look like to have mutual submission, How does a wife mutually submit? How does a husband mutually submit? And and in wives it looks like this. Wives, and the word submit here isn't there, it's in the same way, wives, yourselves to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Now, if you're a wife and you're reading that, you're going, wow, that sounds crazy. Well, next week we're going to talk about what that looks looks like. So if you're mad at me now, don't get mad at me yet. Wait till next week. Then you can get mad at me after I explain it. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Notice Paul uses twice as many words to talk to the men. Sometimes real dense. We need to hear it more. But I'll point out that the role of a man is to lovingly lead his wife. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What Paul is doing here is he's quoting Genesis 2, where God created the first wedding ceremony, created marriage. But then he says in verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect his husband. Paul's saying, look, there's this beautiful picture. And when I talk about this beautiful picture, I'm actually saying this is describing Christ and the church. So our marriages are meant to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. And for many of you, you might go, Well, I got a bad picture. You know. I got, you know, back in the day when you send the kids forward, I was, you know, my my parents had a remote control, it was called me, and I would go and I would click the channels, you know, and and adjust the tinfoil, you know, and try and get the right picture. Some of you kids are like, what in the world are you talking about? But you know, sometimes our marriages are, are, are they're a rough picture. It doesn't really come in. It's not really demonstrating Christ in the church. But, but this, this beautiful union of marriage is meant to, is meant to be a shining light to a dark world that who Christ is and his love for the church. So let's, let's go back to Genesis 2. Let's go back to the beginning where God created marriage. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work on it and take care of it. God gave Adam a job. I think sometimes that's why us as men, we often struggle to not find our identity in our work. God created us with a purpose. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Adam knew that restriction. He he knew what God had set aside about this matter. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. See, God created us in his image. And we're to be His image bearers, and, and so we're to, to, to be a light to the world. This is a, a, We're supposed to shine out and, and kind of in our dominion show who God is. But also part of that is that God has created us for relationships. The Trinity exists in a perfect relationship, and we're also created for relationships. And, and ultimately, we're created to be in a relationship with God, but even beyond that, we're to have companionship here on earth. And he says it's not good for man to be alone, so God created Eve. And it says that I will make a helper suitable for him. And sometimes people have used this to look down on women. Oh, she's just a helper. But do you know the only other person who the Bible describes as a helper? God. All throughout the Old Testament, he's our helper. And even in John, when Jesus says that he's going to send us a helper, he's telling we're sending us the Holy Spirit to be our helper. <coughs> So husbands, we can be thankful that God has given us a partner for life, a helper to walk through life with you. Verse 19, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So so the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. Here we see Adam doing his job and naming animals. But for Adam no suitable helper was found. You know, Adam's going out, he's naming them. Okay, your gorilla, your female gorilla, is that a different name? I don't know. Your cow, you're a bull, you know, he's seeing male, female, different names, got it. This is a cool job. I, I got gypped in my family, right? Okay, so this last week we got we got fish. And the kids all get to name the fish, you know. And, and we got extra fish, so I finally had a chance to name them. And we have one female fish. And guess which fish I get to name? I can't think of a girl name for a fish. I got gypped anyways. <laughs> I'm like trying to think all these names for fish. Adam had to be creative, you know. I don't know. Ostrich. I don't know how he did that. But anyways, he named them all. But he says, he's looking at that, and he's like, hey, where's my partner, right? Where's Where's my partner? There was no suitable partner found for him. He was missing something. GotQuestions.org, a great website, says the Hebrew word translated suitable carries much more meaning than simply fit or appropriate. This word also means opposite or contrasting. This implies that the two beings were designed to work and fit together perfectly, not just physically, but in all ways. The strengths of each compensated for the weaknesses of the other. It was not good for the man to be alone, but together, Adam and Eve were something far stronger and more magnificent than either of them could ever have been alone. Adam had to lose a rib, but he gained so much more. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. He's excited, you know. He says, whoa, man, I'm going to pick. I mean, she's before him. He goes, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, using that same word. For she has been taken out of man. And then God here defines marriage. He performs the very first marriage ceremony. And God says that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame says, that's, that's why you leave your household. And this might be confusing to Adam and Eve. They're like, we don't have any parents. What do you mean, God? What are you talking about? But God's saying, this is, the, this is what marriage is. You, you leave your father and mother and you cleave. You, you, you become one flesh with your spouse. They were naked and unashamed. There was no shame. This parallels, this, this con- sorry, contrasts what happens in Genesis 3. After sin, they recognize they're naked and they're ashamed and they hide. But here they're naked and they're unashamed because there's true intimacy. I think the the best word for, the best way to think of intimacy is into me you see. There was nothing held back. There was no shame, no guilt. Everything was laid bare. They were were not worried about anything, they felt no shame. In Matthew 19, Jesus has asked about divorce. And in verse 3, the Pharisees are testing him. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? There was one sect of the Jews that, that thought you could divorce your wife for any reason. It didn't matter what the reason. If they cooked your soup too hot, you could divorce them. Verse 4, he says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become flesh.'" So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus takes the original marital contract from Genesis 2 and he adds something. What God has brought together, let no one separate. Saying this is a, this is a, a covenant relationship. You know, Tony Merida says this about the, the idea of covenant, that it's permanent, sacred, intimate, mutual, exclusive. Now I know there are some extenuating circumstances, some difficult circumstances, which is why the Bible, even why even later Jesus says in the case of adultery, and Paul talks about in the case of desertion, that because of our sin and because of those things, that there are times where, where divorce can happen. But God's intention for marriage, God's purpose for marriage, was it to be an exclusive relationship from the time someone puts their ring on the finger and says I do until the time that they die but because of our culture there are a lot of marriage myths that exist a lot of things that that maybe we don't think about um things like well love should come easy you know you remember when you first start dating and you know, everything is like super cute and you know, that really annoying thing that drives you nuts about your husband now when he first were dating, you're like, that was so cute. It's so cute how he doesn't put away his dishes. No woman's ever said that. But, but love is hard. It doesn't just come easy. There are times in your marriage where it comes easy and you have that, that feeling and then, you know, love is, is fun, but marriage takes work. And we can remember this last weekend where I was, it said, they said this, every marriage is either moving towards oneness or drifting towards isolation. Every marriage is either moving towards oneness or drifting towards isolation. If you don't put the work into your marriage, more than likely you'll slowly drift away and not even realize it until it's too late. But, but, but I need to feel in love, right? That's, the, that's what we always say, you know. You've lost that love and feeling. You know, we, we want to feel, you know, feel the feelings. You know, I, I just I used to feel so in love and, and now those feelings don't exist. But the reality as Christians is that there are a lot more important things than our feelings. Do you think the Son of God felt like being brutally tortured and murdered so we could have life? Did God die so I could be happy? You know, Jesus says you know you he knows we love him if we do what? Obey his commands. Sometimes I don't feel like obeying God's commands. Sometimes my feelings make me want to do different things, and yet that's how I know that I'm obeying God. Our feelings shouldn't dictate our actions. In fact, the times that we don't feel in love are the times that we should put in the most effort. That we should work the hardest. Because I know that right now I feel really in love with my wife. I want to go down and kiss her right now. I just really like her. And I haven't always felt that way. Sometimes I'm like, just stay away from me. But I know we got there because when we didn't feel this in love, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to love my wife, even if I don't feel like it. And that's how we got here. I think a big problem in our relationships is we feel like we should have a 50-50 relationship, right? Every marriage, every relationship should be 50-50. But the problem with the 50-50 marriage is someone's always a bad judge of distance. Let you think about that for a second. 50-50 marriages lead to what I call scorecard marriages. Here's the way it works. I got my own score sheet. She's got her own score sheet. Today I did the dishes. I'll mark that off. Now tomorrow I'm not going to do the dishes. And then if she doesn't do the dishes the next day, I can mark her on a negative, you know. And and I keep track. I did this, 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 and this. And until she does these things, then we're not even. And that harbor resentment and anger. A lot of times the scorecards are completely different. Sometimes the men's scorecard only has one word on it, sex. And then if the other one, I'm just being honest, sometimes that's the scorecard. And we have these scorecards of this doesn't happen and this doesn't happen. And then we get in these relationship troubles where we're always pushing against each other because we're always keeping score of who's in the lead. And if the other person isn't putting the same amount of work, then I get mad and I harbor resentment. And that doesn't work. The scorecard marriage never works. Instead of us thinking about how I can sacrificially love my spouse, it lends to how my spouse is not doing what she should do, how she's not living up to her end of the bargain. I think another common myth about marriage is the one. You know, there's out there, I know there's the one. I know she exists. But then what happens is you marry the one, and then two months later, I was the wrong one. I, I got to go back in the, the, the little thing that picks out the toys. I got the wrong present right here. You know, we think there's the one, but, but Timothy Keller argues this. He says, you never marry the right person. Well, that's encouraging, right? He explains it this way. Marriage brings you into a more intense proximity to another human being than any other relationship can. Therefore, the moment you marry someone, you and your spouse begin to change in profound ways, and you can't know ahead of time what the changes will be. So you don't know, you can't know who who your spouse will actually be in the future until you get there. So in other words, the second you marry your spouse, you change them, and so if you don't like who they become, You might have to look back at yourself because part of the reason why they're changing is because they married you. Because every relationship that we have changes us. And so when you get married to someone, you say, wow, they used to be like this. Well, the reality is that marriage changes us. And he says, Timothy Keller says, the reality is that all of us on some level or another are incompatible with each other. And so we all, I mean, man, I struggled with this when we were struggling with marriage. Because, you know, when we got married, me and Sandy have no similar interests. I mean, if I had my way, I would like just all day would be sports. So that's why me and Josh, we have lots of blast. Sandy doesn't really like sports. so And she likes things that I don't really like. And so as we first got married, I'm like, what in the world do I do with her? I mean, she wants to do all this stuff, and I don't want to do any of it. I just want to sit at home and watch the Michigan game, our biggest fight, right? Get this, this is fun, Tw- an 20-year-old. It's the fourth quarter of a Michigan game. And we didn't get very many Michigan games because we lived in, in, in Pennsylvania, and so they didn't show very many. And Michigan was driving for the game-winning touchdown, right? Fourth quarter, two minutes left. And Sandy came and thought, this is the time I need to talk about something really serious with Phil. So she starts talking to me about this really serious thing, and I'm listening to her, and I'm doing this thing. Husbands, have ever done this thing? Yes, yes, honey, yes, honey. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I see why that's important. And then a little uh, pass to the tight end. He drops it. I went, oh, come on. And she goes, you don't even care about me. You don't care about anything I'm saying. And she storms in the bathroom, slams the door, locks the door. And I, as soon as I heard the door lock, I go, well, I'm not going to win this anyways. Might as well see what happens with the game. <laughs> so I watched the rest of the game, and she got madder and madder and madder. She's in the room by herself. Don't do that. This is not advice. This is the opposite of advice. Don't do that. Now we have this thing where you can pause the game. Yes, honey, what would you like? It's still hard in the fourth quarter, but anyways. (laughs) The point of this is that the second you commit to someone, what I tell my people, what I tell uh, those that are in premarital counseling, is the second you put the ring on, the finger, and you say I do, what you're saying to the other person is you're the one. You're the one. There's not this... Weird, the one out there. If there was always this, the one, then what happened is if someone down the road made a mistake and married the wrong one, now your one is off the market and you can never be with the one. And what's going to happen? You know, everything would all get jumbled up and messed up. There, there's not this one out there. The one you're with is the one. Wasn't there a song back in the day, if you can't something, love the one you're with? I don't know. Anyways, so the one you're with is the one. And lastly, my, my happiness is not the mo- is the most important thing in our marriage. You just need to be happy. That's always the advice. Whatever makes you happy. I'm just not happy anymore. Was well, I already mentioned? 66% of people that were unhappy five years later were happy. So just trying to gauge our current happiness level isn't that. But but also the reality is that that God gives us a different standard. Paul. When he's talking, he says, look, I understand what it's like to be in need and uh, to to have abundance and and be in want and all these different circumstances. I've been beaten. I've been been tortured, all these different things. But but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What he's saying is God is my source of joy. God is my source of sustenance. It doesn't matter these other things. So God promises. God doesn't promise our happiness. But he does promise to give us joy in the midst of hardships. We continue to seek him. And sometimes the benefit of that joy is happiness, and other times the benefit of that joy is comfort in the midst of trials. So, my encouragement to you today is don't buy into the marriage myths. God has created this beautiful thing called marriage, and if today marriage is a struggle, don't give up. It's worth the fight, it's worth the effort. Get counseling. Meet with someone that can help you. Find a mentor couple. Do whatever you got to do, because I can tell you, a fun marriage, a marriage that is joyful, is the best. It affects every other area. It's fun. And a hard marriage affects everything else, too. That's a struggle. So if you're at that point where marriage is tough, get some help. Me and Sandy would love to talk with you. We've been there. I think one of the benefits of going through what we went through is that we know what it's like to not want to be around each other. But we also know what it's like to want to be around each other. And now we have a ton of stuff we love to do. And none of the things I would like to do by myself. I wouldn't just go to the mall by myself. I mean, unless it's like one specific thing and I walk in that store, get that one specific thing and take the most efficient way out of the store to leave. But with my wife, I like spending time with her. We'll take very inefficient routes through the mall. (laughs) Stopping in random places. Sandy, where do you want to go? I don't know. I just want to walk. When we get there, I'll know. Oh, okay. I love you, honey. I love you. I love you. I like spending time with you. But we, we find that we love spending time together. And, and, and I do have like a limit. You know, I get shoppers fatigue and there's a certain point where, we go, okay, I'm done, honey. She goes, okay, thanks. And we move on. But But we learn to do things together where we just learn to enjoy each other's company, even if it's not a thing that we would pick to do on our own, because we love spending time together. And I want to encourage you that if you're in a bad place that you can get there. And if you're single, good marriages exist. And you can look forward to First off, God has called some people to be single. If God has called you to that, embrace that. And use the freedom that you have in your singleness that I don't have. I can't just go on a whim and do something. I've got to figure out what to do with my kids and my wife. And so if you're single, you have a freedom that I don't have. But if you are single and you're looking to get married and you're hoping to get married, just don't believe all the stuff that this world says. Marriage can be a beautiful, wonderful, awesome thing. And it's worth it. So I just encourage you. God elevates marriage as this wonderful covenant. We shouldn't take it down a notch. Let's elevate it too. And let's pursue good marriages. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we need you. There may be many people in this service right now that their marriage is on the last thread. They've been struggling and fighting and and it's just hard. And so God, I pray right now that you'll wrap your loving arms around them and let them know that you care for them. Let you know, let them know that there's hope. And God, I thank you that, that, that we can look at your scriptures and know how you value marriages and, and how you've created it to be a beautiful thing. And even though sometimes it, it breaks down that God, you care for us. And so God, as we tackle the series and head forward in the series i just pray that it will be encouragement to everyone here and god you'll bring about some reconciliation some restoration some forgiveness in marriages that people can go back and look back at the benchmark i have so many benchmarks in my marriage of where god moved and changed and shifted and that this series can be a benchmark where they can go back and say this is where god started to really turn our marriage around god i pray for your power to be at work in our marriages. In your name we pray. Amen.